Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. At the beginning of November, the Knight Foundation launched a, a really interesting and I think somewhat ambitious project uh, called Exploring Lessons from the First Internet Ages. Uh, the project was curated by law professors Eric Goldman and Marianne Franks and brought together a long list of internet luminaries, both past and present, uh, to talk about their views and their reflections, in particular on what they might have done differently if they'd known how things would turn out regarding the internet. Uh, you can now read those reflections, and we'll have a link in the show notes or just do a Google search on lessons from the first internet ages. Uh, and those reflections include um, you know, very interesting ones from a whole bunch of people, including pioneers like Vint Cerf and Tim Berners-Lee and Brewster Kale. Um, there are reflections from lawmakers like past podcast guests, Senator Ron Wyden and former representative Chris Cox. And there are also essays from those who were instrumental in the rise of the modern web, like Nicole Wong, Reid Hoffman, and Craig Newmark, as well as thoughts from those whose contributions to the discourse have been somewhat more recent, like Matthew Prince from Cloudflare and Ellen Powell. Uh, it's a really great collection of reflections that I think is well worth reading. Uh, there was also a two-day live event around uh, this discussion with a bunch of speakers talking about these reflections and more, including one panel that I was on and which we're going to try to run as a podcast episode uh, here, I think, the week after this podcast comes out, if everything goes according to plan, which it doesn't always, but we'll try. Uh, but uh, beyond the short introductions during the event, uh, we didn't really hear from the organizers and curators of the event. And so to fix that, I'm having them here on this podcast. Uh, so for today, we have John Sands from the Knight Foundation. We have Marianne Franks from the University of Miami Law School and Eric Goldman from the Santa Clara University Law School. So uh, John, I want to start with you, since you helped get this together via the Knight Foundation. So uh, how did this project come together in the first place? Um, well, first off, thanks for, uh, thanks for, for uh, the forum to talk about this. Um, I think it's, we, didn't really, we didn't really plan the event in a way that, that gave uh, Eric and Marianne a way to, um, um, to weigh in, I guess, as, as, um, as, much as, as much as other people might have liked. So I'm, I'm really glad to have this opportunity. Um, this came about last year. Um, we had the idea of, of maybe commissioning a set of white papers that we thought would you know, kind of help move the, the needle a little bit on some of the conversations around um, the future of free expression online. And there are not too many people better equipped to um, to facilitate that kind of uh, you know, field-wide conversation than Eric and Marianne. So we reached out to them and asked if they might be interested in serving as um, night visiting scholars to help organize this this white paper series. And you said at the outset that this was only a somewhat ambitious undertaking. Um, I, th I think that was maybe only a somewhat uh, ambitious undertaking. What they came back to us with um, was a proposal not for a white paper series, but for a much more robust um, kind of retrospective and forward-looking conversation about um, about 
what what we can take in this um, kind of critical moment of the internet's the internet's history when we're kind of between um, uh, between eras. It seems like we're 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 approaching what feels like maybe the end of the platform era, and and, and people are thinking about what's what's coming next. Uh, and so this moment of of reflection, oh, it felt felt sort of incumbent. And Knight was was really really excited about this and about being a you know a neutral forum to bring people together to discuss these issues. So uh, we were just we were absolutely thrilled when they when they came to us with the idea and uh, have, have been delighted by the the turnout thus far. Great. And uh, Marianne, what what kind of things did you expect or or hope would come out of this project? One of the main things that I found so exciting about the the project was this moment of reflection that we were offering some of the you know really influential figures that were there to shape in many ways the direction that the internet took and I was just really excited about hearing what they would think about how things have gone and I think anybody who's done anything for long enough is probably should be appreciative of a moment to stop for a second and say now that I've seen how things have turned out, now that I have made my wagers, uh, now that I have made certain choices, knowing what I know now, would I have done something differently? So I thought that was a you know, really good question, and it was one that, that Eric came up with, a really interesting question to pose for people who had had so much, either intentionally or not, so much influence over the way we now all communicate with each other. So that was what I was really hoping for, was some very deep, meaningful confrontations And John mentioned this kind of neutral platform, the idea of really providing a space for people to be honest with themselves, both about the positive and the negative, and to really grapple with some of the the darkest and most difficult issues that we are now seeing with the nature of online communication. That was really what I was excited about. And Eric, um, basically the same same question for you. Was there anything specific that you were, you know, hoping would come out of this project? So I approached it really as a fan of history and trying to think um, how we would look back at uh, the some of the key players in the industry and um, judge their behavior, um, evaluate what they were thinking, why they were thinking it, and what that's meant for us as, um, as uh, users of the Internet, as fans of the Internet, as, um, uh, as citizens in our uh, community. So... Um, so I was really hoping to have exactly what Marianne described, this kind of honest reflection from people who were there uh, in the room um, and in their own words. To me, that was really important to hear from them, not us saying this is how we interpret their behavior, but them telling us how they interpreted their own behavior. And I think that being involved with the Dye Foundation was so critical because of the Dye Foundation's credibility to be able to convene this conversation if I had tried to approach these people individually and say, I want to put on an event or um, organize these papers at Santa Clara University, um, I don't think they would have been as engaged and excited about it. It was really the Knight Foundation having such uh, gravitas combined with asking them to look, uh, asking the, the contributors to look uh, into them, their own past um, and be as honest as they could about it. Um, I think that's what really uh, were the key ingredients to uh, to to the outputs I was hoping to get. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious on, on that front. Um, you know, how did people react when, when you approached them? 
um, about this project? Were people excited about it? Were people skeptical? What, what was the general reaction? That, and I'm sure there were different reactions from different people, but I'm kind of curious how people responded. I mean, uh, so, so I'll just point out the most obvious. Uh, many of the people we approached ghosted us. So <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't a pushback. It wasn't enthusiasm. It was just silence. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, that's pretty standard for a package like this. <laughs> but, but but you know, I think for the people who did respond, there was there was actually a pretty high degree of enthusiasm. Like we we got a response from from Sir Tim really quickly, um, agreeing to write an essay, and you know. He, was just really interested, I think, in, in being part of uh, of the event overall. And I think the same was true for just about everybody else. Um, everybody else who eventually responded. We didn't get any, like, hard nose or anybody who, you know, that, you know s- sort of agreed and then backed out or anything like that. It was it was either you were, they were all in or we just didn't hear anything at all. Did, did uh, are, are you are you thinking of following up with any of the people who ghosted you now that now that it's been released and say like hey you can still you can still add a uh, you know your own reflections to this if you want or is that uh, you think I mean, if they've if, ghosted if, you if, if Eric and Mary Ann are open to it I'm I'm totally game uh, I was trying not <laughs> to get blocked as a spammer so there's a certain amount of uh, you know uh, volume before we get we have to say you know what uh, they're just not interested. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. But, you know, it's, it's worth noting that the, that the conversation, the tenor of the conversation around the Internet has completely changed since we did our initial outreach back in, you know, I don't remember what it was, but like maybe March, March earlier this year. There's been so uh-huh. much that's happened since then, um, which makes me think that if we were to if we were to press you know, a few people now that they might actually reconsider, uh, they might actually value having a platform to um, to make their case. But to John's point, I do want to add that um, we were trying not to be embroiled in the issues at the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. This really was designed to be an effort to take a longer view and uh, to have uh, reflections that wouldn't look when you look back and say, oh, they were writing that because this was the latest hot uh, uh, um, issue of uh, that they were reacting to. Um, I actually think we did pretty well on that. And that was an integral part. So. I do think that, that other people could say, yes, this is a chance for me to step aside from the headlines and talk more about uh, the longer term. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, I, I feel like so much of my job is just following up on emails saying, did you get my prior email and what's the answer? Um, this, this was definitely um, in the same vein. And and I mean, for any of the three of you, did did you think that the the various pieces in the in the collection, the various reflections, sort of lived up to what you expected? Were they different than what you expected? Um, I'm I'm kind of curious as to how how the the end product matched up with your original vision for it. Speaking only for myself, I I I'd say it's a real mis- mixed bag, um, and. And, with, and what I mean is that, that everybody did something interesting, I think. I think mm-hmm. all of the contributions are, are, are interesting for various reasons. I guess there are there were things that I had wished I would see a little bit more from. So what I said at the beginning about how this is an opportunity to really wrestle with some things that have um, sort of taken over the way that we communicate now and the way that platforms incentivize certain types of behavior – I guess I expected a little bit more self-criticism than I think we saw. 
um, a little bit more room to feel secure enough at this point with especially these particularly influential people feeling confident in their legacies to be able to say, you know, I really, I really do think I could have made better choices. But I do think the ones that did do that did so brilliantly. I mean, I think we saw some really fascinating reflections from people like Nicole Wong, um, from Chris Cox. I mean, people who really were, I think, trying to think this through and to say, this is what we missed and we shouldn't have. And I wish I could go back and change it. And I think that's a very brave thing to do. It's a very vulnerable thing to do, especially in the climate that we're in. And so I, I do think all of the contributions were fascinating, but um, I guess there were some that just made me think, well, you know, you've got some standout contributions where someone's being so thoughtful, so nuanced, so forward thinking that you really wish that that could have been everybody's approach to it. But of course, everybody's got different personalities and different um, time commitments, but, but, but it was a mixed bag. I would add that in that sense, I feel like um, each of the uh, reflections were authentic um, but it, you know, they reveal different sides of, uh, how people are, were approaching the question. So some people view this as, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, as Marianne said, you know, chance to, to, uh, you know, fess up, um, and others view this more as a comms opportunity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a very diplomatic way of putting it, John. No, I was, I was going to say that, that you know, that some of the reflections, uh, came to us as written essays and a couple of them, um, were in the format of an interview that Eric Eric led, um, mm-hmm. um, and the 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 interview with Matthew Prince I thought was just uh, was one of one of the most uh, you know one of the most candid looks inside the mind of somebody who just has an immense an immense degree of control and having Eric there to ask follow up questions and to uh, kind of tease the tease the conversation in certain directions. Uh, was really helpful, and I kind of wish we had had that that opportunity with uh, with a few of the others. Yeah, that, that, that was sounds like that sounds like the sequel, John. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the next script. I mean, I, I was going to say, I mean, from from my standpoint, you know, totally as an outsider, reading through all of the different ones, that that came through as well. Like, I, you know, I um, I got to the interviews last, uh, and you know, when I saw them, my reaction was like, oh. But my gut reaction was kind of like, oh, these were people who didn't want to write something. And so the compromise was like Eric agreeing to interview them. And so I was wondering, like, you know, how interesting are these going to be as compared to like the people who sat down and thought about what they wanted to write and, and put that to paper. But I thought the interviews, you know, the Matthew Prince one, certainly, but but both yeah. of them actually were, you know, perhaps more insightful and more thoughtful because you were able to ask these questions, get these sort of in-depth answers and then ask the follow-up questions. So, so to me, you know, two of my favorite pieces in the collection were those two interviews because I think I learned a lot more and I got a lot more out of both of them than, than maybe a lot of the, the, the written submissions. Um, but you know, I, you know, I don't know how that came about, but yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely encourage if there is a follow-up to this, um, having more interviews, whether it's, whether it's the, you know, written ones or doing them as, as sort of live, um, I, I think both of those would be really interesting. Um, can I, can I just point out one thing about yeah. the interviews? Um, Matt, Matthew, uh, I've known for a long time, but, um, but he was, uh, far more engaged, uh, with this, uh, conversation than I had could have hoped for. Um, it was really great. Um, I should point out, it was may not have been clear. I've known Nero for over 20 years. He was my boss at Opinions. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we had a certain familiarity um, in our conversation and how we think about things that um, I think made that conversation go more fluid uh, than it might have been if someone was coming cold to the conversation. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that's interesting as well. Um, were, were there other pieces in the collection that, that, that any of the three of you want to just sort of call out that, that struck you as really interesting? I know we've mentioned a few of them, but you know, for people listening, I know like for anyone approaching this, everybody's busy. And so it's like, you know, which ones do you want to read? And, and the way it's presented on the page right now is a list of names. And some of the names are, are more recognizable or known than others. But but which pieces in particular for folks who are listening, who might have time to read one or two pieces, but maybe not the whole collection, um, do you want to point people to? And I'll just go in order, Marianne, if you want to go first. Sure. One of the pieces that I would say, in addition to Nicole Wong's, which I thought was a tremendous piece, is Ellen Powell's, which is really Mm -hmm. short. And as you mentioned before, she's not necessarily someone we think of as an early, early um, leader because she's younger than most of the people. But it, you know, her contribution to the symposium highlighted one of the things we struggled with as a project, which is if you're focused on early Internet leaders, you're going to have a very... um, uh, in some ways, a, a very small and very similar looking group, right? That they're going to be mostly men, mostly white, mostly of a certain age. And Ellen really takes that on sort of directly and says, you know, one of the problems is that we don't have enough of the population in the room making these decisions. We don't have enough people who understand the threat of harassment and the threat that that poses to freedom of speech in the room. And that's a big part of why we inherited the platforms that we have. And in her case, she, she um, quite literally did. And so I thought that was a really compelling, her piece is very short, but I think she packs mm-hmm. a lot into that piece to say that's one of the problems here is that it's who was in the room um, when people are designing these very powerful platforms. So I definitely think that hers is up there. Nirov's has been mentioned too, but I want to emphasize something in particular about his piece and that I thought was so interesting about Reed Hoffman's as well, which is the idea of how you do different um how you make certain design choices to get certain results that is limiting people's contacts with each other. Because so much of what Facebook and Twitter has done to us has made us think bigger is better, more sharing is better. But you got all these really nuanced observations from Nirov and from Reed about how maybe you need to make people wait. You need to make them wait um, to learn the norms of a platform. You need to restrict the number of people they can reach or the amount of posts they can make. And so I really think that's kind of the, the lost narrative here is how we don't have to be Facebook. We don't have to be Twitter. Um, if you want to create a community, a literal community in a neighborhood, there needs to be a real address attached. There needs to be some kind of um, reciprocity among the users and some sense of investment in that community. And that's one of the ways that you avoid becoming a place that's just overrun by chaos. Eric, did, did you have any ones that you want to follow? Uh, I would, uh, we had talked about several of them. I would just bring forward. So I thought Reed's was really interesting uh, because yeah. of the philosophical bet he took. Um, <laughs> there was so much of like a philosophy student's approach to it. Um, I just thought it was really interesting as a, as a, as a metacognition approach to the questions. And John, were, were there any specific ones that, that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, I mean, we, we again we've we've lifted up I think most of the the ones that that I, that I think were, were most interesting. The the the, the couple from um, from Sir Tim and and from Vince Surf, I thought were and, and from Bruce or Kale were kind of remarkable in the um in the sense of get getting get, getting a sense of of what those those three guys actually are like. Just you get a, a real sense of their. Um, of their geekiness, you know, um, and that sort <laughs> yeah. of that sort of thing doesn't come through. I think with most people, we we associate as kind of uh, associate with the, the leadership of the internet today. Um, um, 
so th- there was kind of a you know a, a yeah an, an interesting um strangely personable uh affability that came through in all in all of theirs and then um the 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 bit from Brad Smith and Mary Snap who of course were um you know are, are veterans of the the Microsoft um antitrust days uh was was just as as a piece um for, um, for this moment of this moment um was i thought was was kind of remarkable in its candor and, um, yeah um i i think I think all of those that are mentioned were really good. The other one that I would call out that that stood out to me was I thought that that Senator Wyden's piece was was very clear and and yeah. um, just just a really strong description of what he was thinking around things like Section Two Thirty and and why he felt it was important. Um, and I thought that was that was a really really strong piece as well. Um, so and and so you know I have been working on. Uh, you know, uh, because I participated in in the event that you ran, I'm, I'm also I was also asked to to write a piece, kind of reflecting on on the the various contributions. And so I've been thinking a lot about sort of the themes that I saw sort of pop up throughout all different ones. And I'm kind of curious, like what what were the kind of common themes that that you saw, or the kind of interesting distinctions? If if you thought that that some of the pieces disagreed with one another. Um, and, and I, you know, I have my thoughts on that, but, um, I'm kind of curious what you think. So uh, this time I'll start with Eric. If you, what sort of common themes did you, did you see? Um, I don't know that there was a universal theme. I think that there were several themes and, um, um, buckets of them. And I think that the way that we organized the event, um, itself, uh, gave some sense about that. So, you know, we had a, a topic about business models. We had a topic on competition. We had a topic on uh, how do you design services um, and a few others. Those were some of the themes that I think emerged uh, from that um, uh, package. Um, at the end of the uh, event, we had the chance to offer some very brief reflection. I talked a little bit about whether or not we believe capitalism as a model can lead to the kind of media ecosystems we want um, and I think that that came through very loud and clear in the conversations, but I think that was also uh, in the package. Um, one of the theme I'll identify that, that kind of is embedded in many of the subtopics is this question about what do we do in terms of assuming good faith as media, uh, as Wikimedia uh, asks us to do when we're editing the, the service? Um, how often can we assume that people will act in good faith? And what are the, what are the, um, plans that we have to build for when people aren't acting in good faith online? Um, do we anticipate that advance? Do we build a system to harden against their bad actions or their uh, bad faith responses? Um, and if we respond negatively to that, what kind of consequences does that have for the ability to actually enable the good faith actors to do what they want? So this attention between assuming that people are going to be fundamentally good and assuming that people are, are, are going to abuse a system uh, from day one, I think is embedded in a lot of the conversation. And I will probably end up writing some follow-on piece about that at some point, because I think, I think that needs some, some, some more care. The package is so rich and in, in exposing that issue. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, John, did, did you, were there any interesting themes that, that stood out to you? Yeah. 
I, I, I was I was hoping you'd go to Marianne first. Um, <laughs> I can if you want. <laughs> no, no, but but what I was going to say, I think, is uh, that, that we tried to be intentional about designing the conversation uh, portions of, 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 of this project, the, the the live event, in a way that um, that filled in some of the negative space, um, if you know what I mean. Like many of the of the um, the reflections we received don't actually touch on some of the things that are that are um, you know, as uh, as salient as and, and as topical um, today today's conversations um, as as I might have hoped. And so when we were we were thinking about how to structure the you know the the various panel conversations and uh, thinking about whom, whom to invite to speak on those panels, um, we wanted to be very intentional about uh, uh, about the voices that that haven't been heard and the the topics that. Uh, that didn't that don't necessarily emerge as directly from the the, uh, the reflection pieces themselves. And uh, Marianne, were there certain themes that you that sort of stood out to you? I was really struck by the fact that more than one panelist, one, more than one commentator, made <laughs> reference to food. Uh, so Julia Engwin was saying, you know, we've gotten used to having peaches in the winter and maybe now we're moving towards a more, you know, maybe we want to go to farmer's markets. And then I think it was in the panel with Zainab where she was saying, it, look, it's 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 salt and sugar and fat. And that's what we're, we keep serving. It's, it's essentially the same kind of industry. If you allow people or you give people those unhealthy, really tasty things, they're just going to want more of them. And I think Julia and Nestor Dyson were having an interesting conversation about what you do with that, which intersected interestingly, I think, with Reed Hoffman's piece about how you know, he was saying in this very kind of um, lighthearted way, right, we're going to take people's vices and virtues and try to figure out how to capitalize on those, ho hopefully for the, the, you know, for good outcomes. But that's that kind of fundamental question. What do you do with, with the fact that people want bad things or they want easy things or they want accessible things all the time, even if it's making them sick? And there was a really interesting moment of exchange between Julie and Esther where Julie was saying, you're going to have to regulate things, right? You're going to have to take these things away. And, and I think Zainep and Siva and um, uh, that conversation kind of got into, well, what do you do, right? So what is the appropriate thing to save people from themselves? which of course is a dangerous conversation. We, we know that that's always got a negative side to it, but it's also like the food conversation, one that has to be had because it is undeniable that some forms of communication are making people sick and endangering people's lives and um, uh, taking away their privacy and, making, and, and producing net negatives for society, which I think interestingly loops back to what you mentioned, Mike, which is how much you like the Senator Wyden's piece. Um, because it is very clear, right? He says Section 230 is amazing, and we really should not even be thinking about trying to to deal with it right now. And interestingly enough, as critical as Siva and um, Zainab and others were about how things have gotten, they didn't want to talk about Section 230 reform either. Mm. And I guess my own view of this is, well, I think we have to talk about it. And one of the fundamental disagreements I think people have and can have about the meta picture here, not that meta, but the, the, the bigger picture here, right, <laughs> right, is what Wyden says in his piece. He says, Section 230 is easy. It just says the person who creates content is responsible for it, the end. And that sounds so right. It sounds so tempting. But I think there is very much the opposite or 
um, at least somewhat different approach that I, I for one take, which is no, it's not that simple because speech, like any other human activity, is the product of culture. It's the product of contributions. People can give a little here. Another person can give over here. And the next thing you know, you've got a mob. And if you don't contend with that complex nature of speech, you won't contend with the big problems that the Internet can cause. So I think that that's a theme that I'd really I definitely want to take up. You know, how seriously do we need to take uh, the proposition that collective responsibility and collective collective responsibility for our our modes of communication, that just because we don't fire the gun, just because we don't say the inciting thing, just because we don't say the racial slur, don't we still have some responsibilities? And so I'm really interested in, in the approaches that take that responsibility seriously and try to figure out how we can best accomplish it. Um, and, you know, I don't know, Eric, if, if you have any response on, on that. I mean, I think the, you know, obviously I talk about Section 230 a lot and Eric talks about Section 230 a lot. And I know, Marianne, you talk about it. So this is like, <laughs> we could, I'm sure we could go very deep on, on having a debate about, about Section 230. You know, my general feeling is that, you know, oftentimes Section 230 is sort of, you know, it's not, it's not the sort of the, the, the issue is that that is not getting at the sort of underlying problem. I don't, I don't disagree that there are these, like there are real issues around speech and how it's used and, and, and the kinds of harm that it can cause. I, you know, as, as I've expressed many, many times over, certainly on this podcast and elsewhere, I worry about how meddling with, with two thirty is sort of approaching it from the wrong direction. Um, but that's, that could be an, another podcast for another time. I just want to point out that um, the project uh, didn't have Section 230 as a as a targeted deliverable. Um, so obviously, by approaching people like Senator Wyden and former representative Cox, um, 230 was on our mind from the get go. But um, Section 230 is only one of many topics that I think was appropriately within scope for the responses. And so, um, you know, I feel like the goal for this project was to provide more source material for mm -hmm. people to mine on this question. Does Section 230 uh, solve problems? Does it create problems? Is it both? Um, what are we going to do? Um, rather than to answer that question, just to provide that source material. So I think that's one of the ways in which we were able, uh, at least I was able to sidestep this underlying question, do do I support Section 230 or not? That, that wasn't really the scope of this project. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I, I have a, a sort of underlying issue that I've sort of been trying to think through myself, which is like why it feels like the world is kind of overcorrected on, on 230 and sort of is focused entirely on that. I think there are, there are a lot of other legal issues that, that might actually be more important to, to kind of the, the problems that we see on the internet. Um, but again, that, that might be getting way outside the, the scope of this discussion. But, uh, you know, I, I thought it was interesting in how it came up in, in the various discussions. I think that certainly between the reflections and the event, um, people who are Section 230 enthusiasts found things to support them. Uh, people who are critics of Section 230 found things to support them. Um, I think that was really our goal was to, to, to deepen the source material to mine in that conversation. I, I mean, sort of relevant to that and kind of along those lines, is, is there anything that you felt was really missing um, from from the the pieces and the discussion? I mean, I, we've mentioned a few things or, or sort of hinted at a few things. I mean, um, but I'm kind of curious if there was stuff that you really wished could have been added um, to the reflections or the conversation that, that, that would have been really useful, you think, and, and would have added to it. What would those be? 
I think continuing on some of those themes that, um, you know, it, in addition to the the references to the the kind of junk food that we're, we're um, consuming all the time. So Nicole Wong says in her piece, she says, you know, just taking down more content or just being more transparent, these are all maybe very good things. But there's a more fundamental question here, she says, about trying to just change in some ways human behavior or the worst excesses of human behavior. How do we do this? And interestingly, one of the things she says is, what if it was like the slow food movement, right? We just decide that we don't want that kind of immediate, impulsive, um, you know, junk all the time, that, that maybe we should be more sophisticated in our own taste. And I think that's exactly right. And that was something that I think Julia and Esther were getting to. But I'm very interested in this question of well, what do we think the levers are to accomplish that? Other than just wanting people to be different, how do you actually accomplish this? And that, again, loops back to the, the contributions I found so interesting about uh, leaders of communities who really did try to build those steps in to say, you have to have some stake in this community. We're going to build it in. And it makes me think because I'm a, you know, there aren't that many people, I guess, who would think about this much more, but Metafilter as a site that mm-hmm. actually had all these restrictions, right? Became a subscription model before it was cool. I guess it's still not cool, but um, a subscription model that was actually intended to keep it so that you wouldn't have millions of users on Metafilter because millions of users are impossible to to not devolve into chaos. And the idea that you had to wait between postings, that you had to learn the norms of the community before you're allowed to post, these are these seem like very intentional realistic designs, uh, Wikipedia's measures, for instance, things that actually try to slow people down and reward them for reflection, reward them for quality, reward them for not saying things, right? Reward them for not spamming. I think that's really important because you need the positive incentives as much as the restrictions. And that's what I wish there was maybe more talk about it. We got some of it, but I think, you know, if it's not section 230, is it something else? Is it trying to recast some of our longstanding assumptions about First Amendment doctrine, right? If our last incitement case comes from 1969, do we need to talk about what Brandenburg and the internet age is like? Um, And and if it's all going to be voluntary, how do you make those incentives actually work? Um, So I think those are so many areas that people could explore, some of which I think would touch on Section 230, but it's clearly not limited to that because there are Mm -hmm. multiple other ways to approach it. Yeah, and, and I think there there is some interesting stuff there, and I, I agree with you wholly that I think, you know, that's that is where the most interesting things are in terms of like the incentive structures that are involved in all of this. And I know that like Eric, you've written papers about you know alternative approaches to content moderation, which I think touches on that as well. And these incentive structures that that you know some of them were sort of formed accidentally, some of them were sort of formed in response to specific events. Um, you know the way that you know Metafilter is a great example in terms of how it developed, or the way that Reddit developed, or the way that Wikipedia developed, and you have all these communities or next door, um, you know, and, and I, I think that is, that is a really interesting and sort of fruitful area to, to kind of think about. Um, I don't know how much thoughtful uh, discussion and analysis there has been of all those different communities and how they developed and, and why some of them developed in some ways and why others developed in, in, in other ways. Um, but I think that is a really, really interesting area um, that that you know could stand to have a, have a lot more research done and a lot more exploration of you know why did certain communities go in one direction versus another how much of it is you know what are the is it the legal incentives is it the cultural incentives is it just the nature of who who is in charge is it the nature of the early users I mean all of those things I think have an impact um, and it would be really interesting to to see more sort of formal a formal look at that. Um, so, so John, if you're looking for other research to, <laughs> to 
to support finding people who are doing research on that stuff, I think would, would be really, really interesting. Um, just to kind of wrap up some of the, some of this, I, I kind of wanted to know, you know, what, what's next? Do you have plans for, for extending this project out, for doing more with it, for having a follow-up? What, where, what are you thinking? Uh, in terms of, of where this project goes next, because I think it, it was a really important and and useful discussion, um, and I'd love to see it continue. So, uh, you know, Eric and Marianne, do, do you have ideas for 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 doing more with it? I don't know if we. I mean, so you know, we're planning on putting these written contributions together. John can speak more to the shape of what that's going to be like, and how Eric and I will add our own um, reflections to this. I can say for me personally, this has been really important in my own current research. A lot of what I, I work on right now, I, I have a, an article out, a really recent article about public squares, and, and John knows about this, that how do we reconfigure digital spaces to, my argument is, to be better than the public square, because I think the public square is actually a terrible model for multiple reasons for what we want out of democratic deliberation. And my other big theme is the, the new book that I'm working on, on fearless speech, which is focused on trying to have more people speak freely, not just the same people speaking all the time, and to try to actually deal with the question of unanswerable speech or speech that silences other people, but really just sort of backing up this whole question to say, if we think that the internet is the greatest tool for freedom of speech and to actually um, advance democracy then how can we ensure that that's actually what's happening? That is, how much reflection are we doing on the conditions necessary for people to speak freely? That's what I'm most interested in, not just looking at the kind of old debate here of you know censorship versus expression, but what do people need in order to feel like they can speak freely? Do they need to, make, do they need to feel that they will not be called racial slurs? Do they need to feel that their private images won't be released without their consent? Do they need to feel, not feel that their family is going to be threatened? Because if those are things people need, then we need to make sure that our spaces are actually taking care of those needs. Otherwise, we're doing the opposite of democratic um, democracy building. We're, we're sort of taking it away. And Eric? Yeah, as Mary Ann mentioned, we have a whole uh, third tranche of content coming. Uh, the first tranche was the reflections from the initial contributors. The second was the uh, conversations at the event. And then the third will be um, from the people who are at the uh, event, um, uh, their uh, individual perspectives, including the one that we're looking forward to seeing from you. Um, so I think that those three deliverables um, are uh, give three different looks at kind of the same set of questions. So I'm actually really excited about seeing the next one and then looking at the whole thing, all three of those different uh, contributions um, to see what kind of lessons uh, they uh, that we can draw. Certainly for me, this project has uh, helped me coalesce what my next big project will be. It's actually uh, going to overlap a little bit with what Mary Ann was talking about. Um, but I'm really interested in thinking about how we can talk, what, what the, uh, way, how the, how the internet can, um, can improve the ways that we interact with each other offline, um, and what kind of opportunities are created by the technological mediation. Um, and I got that idea from some of the conversations that we had in putting this event together, um, as well as reflecting out pieces and seeing where I thought there was a hole. Um, I think that we need to, to look at you know, what's the next big stage of, of um, human development? And what's the role of the internet in that stage of human development? And um, what does the, what configuration do we need from the industry or, you know, the internet services in order to 
um, to help us in that next stage. Um, I think we're really at the cusp of a battle for the soul of the internet, um, whether or not we're going to go back and have cable style content for like the 1990s, or if we're going to have what we've had in the last 25 years. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, modeling now what those two different, um, contexts look like, um, uh, and, uh, how, how we as a human, as a species, as a society will, will, um, uh, will engage with each other in those two different models. I think, um, to me, that's the next big question. And the question that, that this conversation spurred, but didn't answer, it wasn't designed to answer it, but it's definitely something that needs to be answered. Yeah. And John, do you have any sort of final thoughts on, on what you're hoping to see out of, out of the project as it goes, as the rest of it, as it goes forward and, and yeah. afterwards? Well, I, I mean, Eric and Marianne have um, laid out, I think, what, the aspirations for what, what, what we hope to achieve with the, uh, with all of the, you know, the, the written and, uh, and, and event, event parts of, of this project. But I think what I'd like to say is that it feels to me like we've we've landed on an interesting model of of, of identifying two just absolutely top flight scholars who um, who disagree substantively about almost everything <laughs> and um, and and resourcing them and giving them the space to kind of duke it out and um, and uh, and realize how productive that is um, and how generative that the conversations that can happen um, because of that disagreement, because of that, um, 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 the, the kind of, the, 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 just exactly how, how fruitful it is um, for us to, to have, uh, have you know, safe spaces for conversations like, like this um, about things that are so important. Um, so I, I fully expect that Knight Foundation will continue to, um, to, to, to try to develop this model. Uh, I don't know exactly what, what forward it'll take next year, what, what sort of topics uh, we'll, come up, we'll come up with, but um, that'll largely probably be up to the, um, you know, to the two visiting scholars who we, we work with in the future. But uh, I, I will say, I think that for, for this, this first go around, um, by, by all accounts, it's been just a, a remarkable experience and a great success. And, and we're, we're deeply, deeply, deeply grateful uh, to, to Marianne and Eric for, um, for, for their partnership and for their disagreement and for um, <laughs> the quality of, of the, of the, uh, um, of the work that, that they've led. Yeah. And, and just from a, from a purely outsider perspective, uh, and, and, and knowing all three of you, you know, leading into this, you know, the thing that I thought seemed to work really well about this was the fact that like, even if Marianne and, and Eric disagree on, on certain directions or certain plans or certain ideas, um, you know, the structure of this was really designed to explore the kind of historical um, roots of all of this and the, and the different ideas that get to, you know, why you each have your own perspective on, on where we should be going forward. And, and so, you know, it wasn't designed for the two of you to, to argue over your views on where we should go. Um, but really to, to explore those, those different, um, you know, historical perspectives and ideas. And I think that, that approach is really interesting, um, and, and sort of created this, this really, you know, fruitful package of, of, of content and, and ideas. And so, um, you know, thanks, thanks to both of you and thanks to, to John for, for helping to put it all together. And, uh, thanks to all three of you as well for, for coming on the podcast and being willing to, to, to have this, this interesting chat about it. Um, I am excited to see 
the other pieces that are contributed and kind of what else comes out of this in the future. And perhaps we'll have you all back on the podcast where we can argue about Section 230. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great fun. <laughs> and uh and thanks everyone for listening again uh we'll be back next week in theory we're going to try and put out the the panel discussion that i did for this for this session uh if not we'll have something else but we'll we'll, get, we'll figure it out so thanks again to, to to the three panelists thanks again to everyone for listening and we'll be back next week Someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the